I'm going to take a few moments to set up this text before we actually read our passage this morning. So one of the things that my, my wife just adores about me, she just can't get over how much she loves about it for me, is that I'm pretty good at asking um, questions of groups at parties, you know, kind of like icebreakers um, or get to know you questions. And I'm being sarcastic. She always rolls her eye at me every time I try out my question. What's your first concert you ever went to? Which is a fun thing to ask people. Uh, but I mostly ask because she knows that I get to say I went to George Michael's faith tour who was opened by the Bengals. Uh, and that's the reason I asked that question, so I can brag. So I have a lot of questions like this. I came up with a new one uh, this, this weekend, which I thought was kind of fun. I'd been thinking about it during the week and uh, had uh, Pastor Brian Stebbin and his wife over on Friday night uh, to meet with Laura and I. And uh, I asked them uh, kind of like, Name three icons for you, like people that if you had to pick kind of some aspect of who they are or what they've done in the world that you aspire to. Just, it doesn't have to be all of them, just some aspect of something that they've done or the way that they are in the world that is kind of on your mood board, if you will, for yourself. And my answer, uh, well, actually, who wants to say an answer to their first concert? Anyone? First hand up. Yeah, you didn't raise your hand. Kenny Chesney, all right. Amy Grant. All right, all right. No, that's not bad. Smashing Pumpkins. We're all dating ourselves. Um, <laughs> get the man some cake after the service. He wins. So my icons were um, Walt Disney uh, f- for his world-building ability. Uh, Rick Rubin, the producer, the wonderful producer here from NYU, Def Jam, many other things, uh, also rebooting Johnny Cash's career. Uh, and then Anthony Bourdain for his travels and love of other cultures and food and his interests. So I asked this question. I think it's an interesting question. You can reflect on it later. Maybe next week you can tell me in person. It'll be fun to hear what people's icons are. Uh, the word icon comes from the Greek, icon. And it's understood to be a person or thing that's widely admired, admired especially for having great influence or significance in some particular sphere. That's just from the dictionary. It can also be an icon, can be an emblem or a symbol or a sign of something else. It's also, of course, coming from the Greek, it goes way back into very early Christianity uh, as a religious artifact, an icon. You've probably seen these, right? A representation, perhaps a mural or a mosaic or a painting on wood, A representation of sacred events or especially of a sacred individual, such as Jesus or the Virgin Mary or a saint. And then this artifact is used as an object of um, meditation, of veneration, or perhaps a tool for instruction. According to one Greek Orthodox Church website, it says, Our icons, unlike Western pictures, are meant to change the perspective and form of the image so that it's not merely naturalistic. And I think what they meant was it's not just representational It's meant to evoke something beyond itself, as it even it teaches you, but you think what it represents beyond it. And they wrote, this is done so that we can look beyond the appearances of the world and instead look deeper to the spiritual truth of the holy person or the holy event. So you might ask yourself again, who are your icons? Who are the people you aspire to be like? And what do they represent beyond just what they've done to you? about your understanding of what it means to live a good life. 
Each of the people I named had some aspect, and others that I would not say were aspects of the good life, but they have some aspect of something that they brought into the world that was true and good and beautiful that I long to be more like. Who are those people for you? Your models of the good life. You know, you might take a look at your Pinterest page and think about it as an icon, icons. Or the people that you choose to follow on social media. Whose clothes or thoughts and opinions or accomplishments or passions do you study? Whose memoirs are you reading? Who are you listening to? Who are you longing to be like? To look into the details of their lives, to meditate on upon it, and to see what is behind it that makes them seem so attractive and accomplished. See, the interesting thing here is that humans in the Bible, it says human beings, you and me, are said to be made, that is created by God, in the icon of God, in his image, in his likeness. We are a painting or drawing or living sign of him. And one of the problems with us is that we tend to study or gaze, aspire to some kind of superhuman icons instead of self. We also tend to only admire the icons that have achieved our values. We don't tend to meditate upon or find beauty and truth and goodness and worth in those who seem undesirable. And one of the beautiful things about God and about Christianity, about the good news, about Jesus, is that much of it is about giving us new eyes to see, new icons to meditate upon and study and aspire to be, beauty where we don't see it with our natural eyes, aspiration to alternative styles of life and ways of being, lifting up the lowly, opening up the inner circle to others new icons ourselves. See, Jesus and his church give us a gorgeous icon in the story I'm about to read. It'll be a, a verbal picture. But icon. This is Mary, of Mary and Martha, coming to anoint Jesus here a week before his death. And it will upend, it will turn over everything that we tend to see as worthy, that we admire and to love. This comes to us from the good news according to St. John, the 12th chapter. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. But Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. 
For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, a lot of you were trying to get me to listen to podcasts for some number of years, and I resisted it, but lately on my walks, I've been getting into podcasts. One that I listen to when I just kind of want, it's a little bit escapist. It mostly just makes me laugh a lot. It's called The Smartless Podcast. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's got Will Arnett and Jason Bateman and Sean Hayes are the, are the uh, hosts, and they just interview more and more their friends and famous people. So there's all these comedians. They just crack each other up the whole time, and they interview other people uh, and ask them questions. And they usually try. They go from the fun stuff, lighthearted stuff, a lot of joking and ribbing of one another. But then they usually try to get something, somewhere a little deep with people. Of course, a lot of their friends are can- uh, comedians. Uh, a couple of them are Canadians, which is why I just had that slip. Uh, com- Canadian comedians. Uh, they had Zach Galifianakis on there, who's living in Canada, though he's not Canadian. Uh, if you, you guys know Zach Galifianakis, he's the guy that has the fortune on some occasions to resemble me a little bit. Um, I'm joking. Uh, but Zach Galifianakis, funny guy, and he, he was being interviewed, and they just kind of kept pushing, like, well, how did you get into comedy, and what, what made you, who did you want, and he couldn't, he didn't really want to answer, he kind of kept evading, and finally, at some point, he was more unguarded, and he was just telling about his dad, and about his dad was just like jovial, hilarious blue-collar guy that just was always waiting to be made to laugh. And he said that he and his brother used to just be so happy because they would go around and do everything they could to make their dad just have a belly laugh. And at some point, he was kind of unguarded, and he said, my dad's laugh is maybe my favorite sound in the world, and I'm pretty sure that the reason I'm constantly making jokes is just so I can hear an echo of that sound more and more in my life, which was such a beautiful thing to say that his motivation was his dad's laugh. It became this kind of iconic thing for him that still motivates him in everything he does to hear more of that laughter. See, beneath our icons, our motivation is always something deeper. And our motivation, if you think about an icon for us, whatever it may be, picture of the good life, we sacrifice something in pursuit of this thing. We have either found something we think is worthy of our love, or we're trying to find something worthy of our love. And so we look at it and look for it in icons. And then also, as Zach mentioned, in giving ourselves to icons, we're not just looking for something praiseworthy, something lovely, something to love, but also that as we participate in it, we will be found to be worthy of loves, love ourselves. That people, we could make people laugh. We could make people listen to us. We could make people want to be like us, that we might be worthy. We're hoping that there'll be this reciprocation, reciprocity in some way from others or from the world. Another word for this process I'm describing, it's a very religious word, but it's the word worship. It comes from the old English, just worth-ship, that you think something is worthy of giving yourself to of loving and being loved by. And it is true that you will eventually become more and more like what you love. It's just the way we're made. And you will what you worship, what you are sacrificing for, what you are giving yourself to, the icons that you are desiring, the ways of life and being, the sacrifices that you make to become more and more like these things, part of them, to love and be loved. Again, on the surface level, we tend to worship I'll use that word, to give worth to, to give ourselves to, to aspire to be like the highest Instagram accounts with the highest followers or our favorite 
intellectual of whatever belief system. Innovative CEOs, celebrities, the, success, the successful. One of my favorite writers, Henry Nouwen, who I reference often in here, he wrote a book in the middle of his life called Downward Mobility. Lovely phrase, right? Downward Mobility in the Spiritual Life. Here's what he says in that book. We've come to believe that a service is valuable when many attend a service like this one. A, prost, a protest or a demonstration is worthwhile when television cameras are present. A group is worth having when many want to be part of it. A church is successful when many desire to become members. Worth in our culture has become so largely determined by statistics that it is easy for us to truly believe that the number of people who listen, watch, or attend is a measure of the quality of what is presented. We act as if visibility and notoriety were the main criteria of the value of what we are doing. It's not easy to act otherwise. Stats do rule our society. The biggest box office hits, the best-selling books, the fastest-selling cars, the record-breaking athletes, these are the signs that we're dealing with something significant. To be spectacular is so much our concern that we, who have been spectators most of our lives, can hardly conceive that what is unknown, unspectacular, and hidden can have any value or worth at all. And again, at what cost do we love these things? We sacrifice our money, our time, our relationships, our rest, our joy, sometimes God or church, our mental health, our physical health. We pour it out in pursuit of our loves. We worship it. And the problem is our worth is now tied to whether or not we're successful in being seen or praised or liked or accepted. I sacrificed all of this and no one's paying attention. Who are you when no one pays attention? When no one says thanks or recognizes your work? Isn't it true that the more praise we receive, it's never enough and you desire more and more that it never ends? Even worse, if people actually judge you or mock you or leave you or ignore you? We really do, that hustle. Can we try to kill ourselves to, in the worship of the wrong things? Just trying to love and be loved. Now compare this with Mary in this beautiful icon of a story that the scriptures give us. An icon, a new icon for us to meditate upon from God for us. Let me try to paint the picture of her story again a little bit. She's in her hometown where not so long ago, Jesus has raised her brother from the dead when, he, when she begged him to. They're now having a dinner party and she's in a room of the relatively powerful, all or mostly men, Pharisees, those people that are kind of not in a good mood about everything, but definitely the ruling class of the people in her town. There's 12 male religious insiders, that's the disciples, surrounding this man who had just raised her brother from the dead, who by one way of telling is a Messiah wannabe, who is also at the peak of his popularity, and is, it's rumored, perhaps about to go in and take over Jerusalem in a great protest and uprising that might turn into a coup and set their people free and in power again. Mary's a woman. She's poor and vulnerable. It's quite possible, though not certain, that she could also be the Mary that was a former prostitute. At any rate, her behavior here is entirely scandalous. 
She sneaks in, lays down on the floor at their dirty feet in the dust, again vulnerable, yet audacious, open, subject to ridicule and perhaps even violence. And she's the only free person in that room other than Jesus. She shows shows us how to worship the one person who always gives life rather than takes it. The one who sees downward mobility and lifts up. She takes this pure nard, really, really expensive, nice perfume. We know that it's uh, worth one year's wage, okay? So this is a lot of money. It's worth a lot of money here. Just a few days before this, she had fallen down at Jesus' feet to express her disappointment that he didn't show up and heal her brother. And now she realizes if Jesus gave it all for her brother, if he would do anything that her brother would have life, then she's been given all she could ever want. And she could do something outlandish and not worthy in the world's eyes. She could make a decision that her financial planner surely would have outlawed. It looks like she's been set free from hoarding or venerating her possessions, from looking at them as some ultimate way of being successful and happy and secure. And instead, she just has met this Jesus, and there's something in him that is worth worshiping, that is actually worthy. And so she's free. She's no longer enslaved by her need to hold on to her only valuable possessions. And instead, she's possessed by the generous love of Jesus, and she pours out what might be $50,000 worth of perfume on her Lord in what is actually a wise investment. When you see Mary here on the floor, distraught, perhaps, but also in love, wasting her savings and all that she has, precious, on the dirty feet of an unspectacular-looking, maybe, maybe not, pretend prophet, who, by another way of looking, has no education or bloodline or power, who's not a potential husband for her, and is thus this whole thing unnecessary for her because he doesn't really offer safety or an upwardly mobile move. When you see this Mary, do you see them at first as all the other people in the room did? As Judas spoke up and said, this is a waste. Do you see a worthwhile life? Do you see something to aspire to? Or do you see royal waste? Waste like those hours that you won't get back. Waste like those sleepless nights. Waste like those super thin relationships that always stay thin because people move or don't have time. Isn't it true that sometimes at our best we pour out nard on some faceless or nameless or immaterial personal dream with no guarantee that even if we do find it, it won't know our name or embrace us back or make us feel worthy or protect us or be loyal to us or be our flesh and blood beloved? Mary learned that nothing in this world was going to be the icon she needed other than Jesus himself, the one who would ultimately love her back, the one who was worthy of all that she had and considered her worthy of his defense and praise and love. She sacrificed to find something to love. She poured out her life to find this love. She wasted something precious on her lover, and it was actually not a waste. She had met Jesus as God's icon, 
And in worshiping Jesus, giving, sacrificing, just practical sacrifice, something that you find valuable for the sake of Jesus, in doing this and worshiping in this way, she becomes an icon too. She becomes iconic. In her worship of icon, she found love that was chaste and real and communal and public and true and lasting. She got Jesus and she got his love in return. Hear this in the parallel passage in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world forever, what she has just done will always be told in memory of her. This poor, perhaps former prostitute, embarrassing herself in a room full of men, powerless on a floor, pouring out all she has, embalming his feet for his impending death, and wiping his feet with her tears, like with a rag, getting the oil and dust off in the mud and cleaning it. He says forever, everywhere, they're going to tell this story, and they're going to remember her. She is going to be an icon on the pages of my Bible you guys are going to put together. And preachers are going to preach on it. And people are going to think about it. And they're going to see and know. And is she not lifted up, this Mary? Do you still see a sad life that's not at all admirable? Or do you see someone living the good life? Living true. Living free. Living well and good. Henry Nouwen, who I quoted from, I've told you this before, but he was not only a noted intellectual, I forget all the Ivy Leagues that he taught at, but just think of one, and it's one of the ones he taught at probably. He had three places, I think, where he was a distinguished professor. He gave up these professorships in the middle of his life. He had a lucrative uh, speaking tour, and he gave it all up to move to a small community and spend the rest of his life being the attendant and servant of a severely disabled man. That's what he did. And that's when he started writing these books like Downwardly Mobile Life. When you hear Henry Nouwen doing something like that, does it describe a life of flourishing to you? Is that an icon of beauty? Can you actually begin to look at it askance a little and say, what made him rich enough, full enough, and free enough to go discover his true self in this way. He wrote this again. The temptations of being relevant, spectacular, and powerful are real temptations, and they will stay with us all of our lives. But when we find that our true self is hidden in God alone, we find ourselves able to continue to serve our fellow human, human beings even when our lives remain the same, even when few people offer us praise, even when we have little or no power. Because we come to know ourselves as God knows us, as his sons and daughters hidden in his love. So we will become conscious of truly being sons and daughters of God by becoming participants in this downward way, the way of the cross. As Mary became an icon herself, we, he says, become icons. When we study Jesus and his life, his downward mobility, leaving heaven to come and be one of us, his suffering every temptation that we ever face yet without sin, his going to a death that we were going to face and we were facing it in fear and shame and now we don't have to face it in fear and shame. We know that it's just going to be a temporary uh, death and the sting has been removed from it. 
If we come and we can be free to give ourselves to Jesus and follow his path in a downwardly mobile way as the icon of the good life, then we become like him. We become like Mary. What would that be like for you? A couple of concrete questions in closing. What if we were able to pour out our precious resources to Jesus and be an icon for the world? Could you paint paintings if you knew now that you'd never get a gallery show or make a living off of it? Could you still just do it just for the love of Christ? Like joyfully pouring out some perfume in a wasteful act of the unnoticed ordinary? Could you pay your taxes and tithe without grumbling or fanfare because you love Jesus generously? Could you serve at your office with no manipulation for promotion just because you believe in laying down at Jesus' feet? Could you clean up your messy roommate's mess just because they're made in God's image? Jesus needed his feet cleaned. Could you keep serving your kids even though now, and even when they're 90 perhaps, they will still never know it all or be grateful for it and certainly won't tell you enough that they're aware of it and thankful for it and will actually blame you for some of the stuff you got wrong? Could you keep working for justice when it doesn't seem to make a difference? Could you keep going to church when there are way more spectacular things to do in New York City on most Sunday mornings? Could you take a pay decrease to do a more humane job? Could you stick in the city longer when you get a wanderlust for something new and exciting? Could you marry someone for their character and love of Christ instead of just their looks? Could you put newcomers to our church ahead of yourself and serve them at the table when they walk in? Could you begin to see one another as icons of God? As his alternate community in this neighborhood, in these neighborhoods, and in this city, and throughout the world, as icons of the good life. It said that this smell went out and filled the whole room. Smell is one of the most sensitive of all the senses. It's our first one to develop, scientists say. You can remember smells with 65% accuracy after a year. A survey found that 85% of all people that they surveyed remembered their childhood when they caught the smell of Crayola crayons. Mary's ointment smelled a certain way. To some people, it smelled like waste. To other people, it smelled like life. What if we as a community begin to smell more and more like Mary's ointment, like the life of Jesus? Some people see death and waste, but if the smell is strong enough and it's different enough at some point, will it begin to fill the room of our lives together and to serve as a promise and a memory and a sign of this alternate way of life that truly is the good life, the icons of God. May God give us grace to become that together today, this week, and beyond. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.